Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, scolios, which we get scoliosis, the crooked. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's the reading of God's Word. Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, you who gave this Word through the Holy Spirit, may that Spirit apply it to our hearts that we will believe it and live it out in our lives to your glory and honor. Amen. In verse 21, he speaks of Christ's example. Uh, This is literally a writing copy where you would write a copy of the letters so that others could copy the letters and learn them. He's our writing copy who suffered for us. And interestingly, he suffered for us and this becomes our calling, he says. To this you have been called. What kind of person, aside from Richard Simmons, always advertises workout equipment? You know what he looks like. Uh, they have uh, body fat, 3 to 4%, sculpted, uh, kind of like me and Ben Dice, actually. Uh, if you could just see us, uh, that is. Um, but what they're advertising, what you see is what you will get. What you see is where I will take you. I'm calling you to this, is what the advertisement says. And what do you think then when the person, capital P, that is advertising, that is calling you, has wounds in his hand and feet and side? And he calls you to this, he says. What would you think if you're living in a country where Christians were regularly physically abused? You're an unbeliever and you go to a house church meeting. Perhaps half the people there bear scars for their suffering and they're trying to get you to be a Christian. What can you expect? And so he calls us by his very example as one who suffers. We are called to suffer. But the amazing thing about this is that he suffered for you, he says, which brings us on to verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. We willingly suffer for one who didn't just suffer unjustly, but he suffered in that terrible way for our sakes. 
The injustice of it was connected to our desert. If he stood in our place to suffer for what he did not do, as Peter later says, the just for the unjust, all for our sakes, let us freely give ourselves up to suffer, even if unjustly. That's the argument of the passage. And as Leighton mentions, the Puritan writer, we can all the better bear suffering if we know he has borne our punishment. We can bear suffering for his sake if we know he has borne our punishment. And as he says here in verse 24, he bore our sins in his body, not any longer in the substituted bodies of lambs and oxen in which the priest would place his hand upon them and pronounce sins and then they're killed or driven out into the wilderness. This time it's not just a symbol of judgment, but the judgment itself that falls upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell itself, the tree as mentioned here is the Indication, of course, of the curse, he who hangs on a tree. And so all the potent wrath of God is unleashed upon Christ so that his being became like a city whose buildings are gutted and raised to the ground by a holocaust of explosions and fire. He bore his wrath. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. So, the Father thought of our sins, as, as Grudem says, as belonging to Christ, then punished Him with that anger against sin, that separation from God, and consequent death which we deserved. And we know that he struggled and agonized and he cried out to God in the garden. He cried out that he could be delivered of it, that he wouldn't be associated with the poison and punishment of sin, if at all possible. But it had to be and the shadow, horror of its shadow fell upon him. Can you imagine being put in a coffin and then having a dead and decaying body tied to you, and then the lid closes. The sickening and hideous carcass of sin was placed upon our Savior. He was so identified, he was lashed to it in a sense. He became sin, as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians. And so, all of its repulsiveness He was punished as though it had all been done by him in all of his purity and perfection of love. He was punished as though he had been the one who had done all our evil of thought, word, and deed. They became his debt and he became responsible for them. You know, in every uh, agreement, contract, covenant, It's uh, popular to say, and of course good to say, we want a win-win in this situation so that every party is benefited. And this covenant with Christ, there is this union. We bring something and Christ brings something. We bring sin and guilt. We bring corruption and death. He brings righteousness, atonement, eternal life. And from one perspective, you might say, well, that's a win-lose 
for sure. We receive His righteousness and the satisfaction He made for sin. He receives our punishment. Our debt becomes His debt. He bears the responsibility of it. But though we may look at it as a win-lose, gloriously, Christ looks at it as a win-win. How could He? Because He has such joy in loving us. For the joy set before Him. As the writer of Hebrews says, it's a win-win because of the love He bears for us. And it is a win-win because of the glory He receives for so loving us and so demonstrating perfectly the love of God in the cross. We win and He wins gloriously. But in this passage, the... It doesn't speak so much about forgiveness, though that's understood in bearing our sins. The, the result, the, the end in view is set before us. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And of course, particularly in this passage, that even in the midst of suffering, where sin is uh, so easy so, and, and is multiplied, even in suffering... We die to sin and live to righteousness. And so by death, we leave one world and by resurrection, we enter another world. Like fainting in a prison camp with all of its cruelties and its starvation and its suffering. Fainting and you you wake up in a clean hospital with the most tender care, rehabilitation and medicines and therapy and nourishment. You've died to the life of the nightmare at camp. And you have a new life of freedom and strength and opportunity. He died so that we might die to sin and the horror of its rule and live to the glory of God in righteousness. Paul says that we formerly walked in sin in Ephesians 2. We walked hand in hand with our lover. Sin was our best friend. It was our constant companion. It was the atmosphere in which we lived, the whole context of our thinking. Our natural daydreams never concern the glory of God, and rarely the good of others, and never the good of our enemies. We took to sin like a baby duck does to water. But he died so that I might see sin for what it is. So that I might hate it and oppose it and put it to death. So that I might leave it, turn from it, in no way entertain or encourage it or nourish it or provide for it or give it entrance in order that I might not love it or be attracted to it or see in it any worth or value in order that I might not trust sin for life and happiness in order that I might be dead to its overtures and its offers and its threats, I might die to sin. Some women have been abused terribly. A woman who's, let's say, suffered years of abuse and alcoholism and adultery from her husband may end up saying in the end, whatever feelings and love I had for him are gone. My love for him is dead now. And this is what Christ died for 
that our love for our former husband's sin would be dead. That we would realize sin's abuse, how it molested us and defiled us and violated us and betrayed us and abandoned us. He died that we would not join ourselves to this abuser any longer. That we would die to it and walk away from it and refuse its coaxing and enticements and its lies and its deceptions. And the whole point, of course, separated off from acts of sin to live righteously. Like plants that were living in a toxic waste environment. To be planted now in freshly prepared soil with just the right water and just the right food. One old writer says that man's heart is no other than a forge of sin. No other than a forge of sin. But by God's grace, Christ shuts down the forge. He bombs the forge. He disables the forge. There's a new factory put into operation. As he says in John 7, there's a fountain of living water gushing forth from your innermost being. You will die to sin and you will live to righteousness. That is what he died for. That is what he bore, the awful wrath of God on the cross, bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And will he punish his own son for sin, demonstrating his absolute hatred for sin and then not free us of that sin that he obviously hates so passionately? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. He will free you of sin. He will free you of sin. It is the point and end result of Christ's death. And along those lines, in almost similar language, verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We're made to think, of course, of the condition of a sheep that has lost its safety and provision, no longer under the care of one who must care for it. Confused and paralyzed, subject to fall off a cliff or being ravaged by wild animals or stolen by thieves. It's starving and dehydrated. And now, as Stibbs puts it, their lives are no longer aimless and wandering, but are redirected and dominated by a new personal attachment to Christ. What's so glorious is that his wounds convince us, his death is the Father shines the glory of Christ's death into our hearts. We become convinced of the better deal that Christ will give us, to put it bluntly. We doubt Him no more. We ignore His love no more. The cross is calculated to wake us up, to pierce through our darkness and cause us to return to Him, the shepherd who laid down His life. We see His love on the cross, and we put ourselves under His care. That's the essence of dying to sin and living to righteousness. You put yourself under the care of the shepherd. My father died recently. He was a doctor for many years, and he was chief of staff in the hospital where he died. Statement about human the human condition and frailty. But um, 
Many, many times I was under the care of my father. And it was a special care because he was my father and he was my doctor. And it's hard to describe what that was like, to have that kind of tender love and concern for me when I was sick. And, and that's what we're doing. We're putting ourselves under his care like you would a doctor, taking all the recommended treatments and medicines and submitting to his healing power. We return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And remember the context, how this would sound to suffering servants. And some of you have suffered greatly and will suffer. To suffering servants, he's saying, you are under his care. You're being guarded and shepherded even as you are suffering. As you're suffering, you're not lost, forgotten, abandoned. He bore your sins and with that intense love, He cares for you. Sins, wounds are being healed in you even if you're receiving physical wounds due to your suffering. And Clowney puts it as he does so well. Household slaves designated as a thing by the Romans and bodies by the Greeks are in Christ a kingdom of priests, a royal nation, Jesus the Lord is their shepherd, the guardian of their precious souls. But then tucked between those two phrases is this last one we'll look at briefly. You died to sin and lived to righteousness. You were straying like sheep. You've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And this wonderful little statement, by his wounds you were healed. By his wounds you've been healed. The final end in view is our complete and total healing, soul and body. This obviously is emphasizing more the moral healing, our spiritual healing, because of the very context of dying to sin and living to righteousness. You can imagine a man who learned of thousands of natives uh, dying of a plague, and if they could get the one medicine they need, they could be healed and rescued, otherwise Whole villages will be destroyed, and the only way to get there is to trek through the jungle. And despite all precautions along the way, he's gored by a buffalo, he's bitten by a snake, he's infected with malaria, his weakened body is brought into the village, he's able to stay alive just long enough to teach them how to administer the medicines before he dies. But what was his whole purpose in every bit of that? It was to see them healed. To see them healed. This is Christ's whole effort of all of his suffering. Is to see you, brothers and sisters, me healed completely. And finally, this is always his end. In Ephesians 5, he loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so sin is viewed here as a sickness, a disease, and he heals us of that disease. And it's striking that he uses the word stripes, thinking of the lacerations. This, this terrible lacerations bring healing. Explicit only in his being hurt and wounded are we made well. Through his being injured and broken, we are healed. Commentator Selwyn uh, quotes Theodoret, 
a new and strange method of healing. The doctor suffered the cost and the sick received the healings. Well, how are we healed? I, I think time-wise I just should mention these, but he, his wounds healed me. I'll just mention a couple. His wounds healed me of my self-righteousness. They healed me of my obnoxious and insane pride that I can earn God's favor by my own righteousness. When he becomes associated with all that you or I have ever done, what happens to him? What happens to him? The gravity and guilt and corruption of our sin is measured by what happened to Jesus Christ when he was associated with it. Leighton says, God's just hatred of sin did beyond doubt appear more in punishing his own only begotten son for it than if the whole race of mankind had suffered for it eternally. But his wounds heal us of unbelief. His wounds heal us of unbelief. They heal us of our mistrust of God and our terrible suspicion of God. Our whole lives spent apart from Christ are spent finding things to depend on other than God. In all of our difficulty and pain, we find various replacements for God, various means of coping with light apart from running to Him and trusting Him. We don't submit to His will. We don't walk in His ways because we don't think He will make us happy. We don't think He will do us good. We started in the garden. His wounds heal us of our unbelief as John in 1 John 4, after talking about the suffering of Christ, he says, what has happened was God has applied this to our hearts as we've come to see. He says, we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. He heals us of our unbelief. We doubt that his arms are open to us. He opens them. He, we question them. We walk away from them. But when He shines the light of truth on His Son's sacrifice, we are convinced of those open arms of forgiveness and care. We are healed of our refusal to entrust our lives into His care and keeping. And our healing means that we trust Him to do us good from now on. That's what it is to be healed. You trust Him that He will do you good every single day of your life. Our healing has begun. We've returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And isn't it encouraging? His death indicates the seriousness of his desire to bring good into your life. Think of that passion. After speaking of it in Isaiah, it says, the zeal of the Lord will do this. His burning desire will bring it about. And so, brothers and sisters, all of his promises are opened up through Christ. I love that statement in 2 Corinthians 1, that all the promises are yea and amen in Christ. He is a refuge. Why, he died for me. He is a strong tower. He died for me. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. He died for me. He will make me more and more holy and more and more loving, more and more like Himself. He died for me. He will turn me away from my particular complex of ugly sin. He died for me. 
He will build his church. He died for us. He will bring us to unity and community. He died for us. In our worship together, he will make us weak, need, and stunned at his breathtaking beauty. He died for us. He will make us elders and deacons and that he intends because he died for us. He will make us the parents and the husbands and wives he intends. He died for us. He will make us a church constantly leaning into mercy and kindness and good deeds and wise, compassionate servanthood evangelism. He died for us. By his wounds, brothers and sisters, you are healed. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you lift up our heads even in suffering. You comfort us. You show us the glory of your calling in suffering. We suffer for one who suffered for us. We suffer for one who bore our sins, the just for the unjust, in order to free us in order to liberate us, in order to heal us, in order that He would be our shepherd and guardian forever. Oh, Lord, thank You that when things are the very worst for us, thank You that when disaster and tragedy waylays us, invades our lives, that we have, can have our eyes set upon one who bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Oh, we rejoice in you, O Lord. Comfort your people. Bless us with the sweetness of Jesus Christ. We pray in his Secure our way to God.